2015, Catholic clergy from all over the world gathered together in Rome to choose the next pope. And one of the clergy to arrive was named Bishop Basilius of the Order of Corpus Dei of the Italian Orthodox Church. And Bishop Basilius arrived with a small entourage of priests that were with him, kind of attending to him, and he mingled with several other cardinals and bishops, and he really kind of went right up to the Sistine Chapel, heading to the secret meeting place where they were going to choose the next pope. After about an hour of kind of mingling around with the other clergy and, and taking pictures and doing his thing with his priest friends, several armed guards approached him, asked him a bunch of questions, and then escorted he and his priest friends off of the Vatican premises. See, even though he had made it through security and he spent about an hour hobnobbing with cardinals of the highest rank within the Catholic Church, he wasn't really a bishop. His name is Ralph Napierski, and he's not a bishop, he's a German blogger. <laughs> there's no such thing as the Italian Orthodox Church, and there's no Catholic order called Corpus Dei. He made everything up, but they believed him, they bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And for almost an hour, he fooled security and all the other clergy into thinking that he was one of them because he looked the part, and he acted the part, and he spoke the part. Now, as we continue our Twisted Scriptures sermon series today, we're also in the middle of our missions month. And today we're going to be looking at a verse that is very often used for evangelism and for outreach and for kind of the... the Okay, here's the verse to accept Jesus. And so we're going to look at how this is twisted. It is an evangelistic verse, but what is the gospel that is actually being preached by Jesus here? We're going to look at that, and uh, we're going to untwist it and straighten it out. So if you would turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Would you turn there? I'm going to pray. Father, I come before you, and I'm not adequate for this sermon, Lord, and so you have to be speaking through me. And I pray, Lord, that my lips and my tongue and my heart and my mind and all of myself would be yielded to you, God, and that your spirit will go before me and that all of our hearts will respond to your truth, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Revelation 3.20, it's our twisted scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, there are lots of different ways that this verse is twisted up, and we definitely don't have time to go through them. So I'm just going to pick one, just kind of the main way that this verse is twisted. And so here it is. Countless, countless, hundreds of thousands of evangelistic tracts through the decades purporting to explain the gospel use this verse as their key verse. And such celebrated evangelists as Billy Graham have made this verse their key text 
in their call to unbelievers to be saved. Now, hear me very clearly. The ministries of Billy Graham in those tracks are amazing, and I praise God for them. And I, I thank Billy Graham for what he's done, because indirectly, I am here standing in part because of his ministry. But we need to understand how this verse gets twisted in the evangelistic call. Often, it goes something like this. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. And if you would just open the door and accept Jesus into your heart, you will be saved. Something along those lines. And so the verse is used to promote a gospel that places all of the emphasis on making a decision for Christ, praying a prayer, asking Jesus into your heart, and then you're covered, you're good, you're, you're good to go, saved. And using this verse this way skews what Jesus was really addressing in this passage. And we're going to unpack this and see that. He's not, he's not saying that all someone has to do is open the door to their heart and accept him. And all of a sudden they're just, they're just good to go. It's not at all what he's saying. In fact, he is addressing a church of people who had all seemingly professed to accept Christ. They had all seemingly asked Jesus into their hearts, and yet Jesus is still speaking to the Laodicean Christians in extremely strong terms. So what's he saying? Well, here's the long and short of it. This is just kind of the synopsis, and then we're going to unpack it. This is a message from Jesus, in particular, to those who have been self-deceived and led astray by religiosity and have not submitted to Christ as master and king. Or they're holding back parts of their life from his ownership and control, trying to continue to do it their own way. It's a message to those who have the appearance of a Christian, but they keep the keys to their kingdom instead of submitting to God's rule and reign and joining his kingdom. These Laodiceans who called themselves Christians, they looked the part, acted the part, and sounded the part, and they were all frauds. And Jesus was exposing them, and then praise God he was giving them a second chance, because that's what our God does. So let's dive into this passage and unpack the words of our master, and as always, we have to begin with the context. And so we turn to verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3, and we read, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, sadly, we don't have time to unpack all of these titles for Jesus, but this is Jesus. These are referring to Christ. These are his words. Jesus, who is the true witness, he is the one who sees clearly into hearts of all men, is dictating a letter to John the Apostle to write down to give to the churches in Asia Minor. Seven churches, to be exact. And Laodicea is the last of the seven churches. And unfortunately for them, they are the only church that Jesus doesn't have a kind word for. He just kind of lets them have it. 
And so if you've been around Cornerstone for any amount of time, you know that when we preach, we always seek by the grace of God to preach the tone of the passage because to do otherwise wouldn't do it justice. So I guess I'm telling you that because this isn't supposed to be a feel-good passage. This is supposed to be an exhortive passage that moves us closer to Jesus. Okay? So we need to know that. But how, how did Laodicea get to this point? How did they get to the point where Jesus was basically kind of saying, you guys stink? It's my paraphrase. Well, we need to know a little bit about the city. Laodicea, they, uh, it was strategically located at a trade route crossroads. And in AD 16, an earthquake, earthquake came through and completely destroyed it. Rome came along, rebuilt the city, and settled the area around it, made it safe. And because of the strategic location, it was able to develop three industries that made it thrive and prosper. Really, the only drawback to the city was that it had no water source of its own. They had to pipe water in from miles and miles away to get water into the people of the city. But despite that drawback, three main industries. The first they became the banking and financial capital of Asia Minor. Everyone did all of their banking through Laodicea, and it made them extremely wealthy. They were at that critical crossroads, and so everyone was there. Secondly, they had a very unique breed of sheep that produced a very soft and raven black wool that they were able to make into all kinds of expensive textiles, in particular clothing for the wealthy. And so everyone wanted this clothing. Thirdly, Laodicea had a medical school very close to it. And this medical school was the only medical school in the world that produced this special eye salve that would cure many eye ailments. And so they would export this eye salve all over the world. Because of these three industries, Laodicea became one of the wealthiest cities in all of the Roman Empire. Unfortunately for them, there was a second earthquake that came through in AD 60 and again destroyed the city. But this time... They didn't need to rely on Rome to rebuild. They were able to rebuild themselves because of all the wealth that they had. Even though most of the population was killed, they were able to rebuild. And over the next several decades, grow to an even greater place of prominence than they had before. And over those decades, a new generation of Christians emerged in Laodicea. See, uh, Epaphras, um, Paul's disciple, had planted a church in this city. We learn that in Colossians 1 and uh, 4. It tells us that. So there was a church here planted early on by one of Paul's disciples. Church and city destroyed. City prospers. And all of a sudden, we don't hear about it again until Jesus writes them a letter. And Jesus is going to show them that their condition is really not very good. So we have the context, and now we are going to look at their condition. 
And so Jesus continues on in verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Ouch. I mean, oof. What, What more devastating thing could Jesus say to a church of his followers? In Scripture, works... I know your works, works always, always reveal one's true faith. They always reveal one's true faith. Though salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, that is undisputable if you honestly approach the word of God. Our works prove the genuineness of our faith. James chapter 2 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The answer, of course, is no. It's a rhetorical question. Because a faith without a life that reflects that faith is not real faith. It's a facade. It's not true submission to Christ as master and king. These are the types of people that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3, 5 when he describes those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Look like Christians, kind of act like Christians, sound like Christians, but there's no power in their life. Why? Because they don't rely on the power of God. They don't seek after Christ, they don't ask for the Spirit, and they do everything under their own power, which is human power. And this is the Laodicean church, a church of people who call themselves Christians, but have not actually submitted to Christ. And they're just like Bishop Basilius. Frauds. Now, Jesus says that these people are neither hot nor cold. They're just blah. They're just, they're just lukewarm. They just, they just walk around with their Christian masks on all the time, never, never showing what is really there. Or actually, if you look closely enough, you see it. They're lukewarm. And the Laodiceans knew exactly what Jesus meant by this because they experienced lukewarmness Every single day when they got their water for the day because it came to them lukewarm. They wanted to do anything with it. They wanted to cook with it or clean with it. They had to heat it up. And if they wanted to be refreshed by it, they had to try somehow to cool it down. It was useless in its present state. It's kind of like salt that had lost its saltiness in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 13, which Jesus said was only fit to be thrown away and trampled upon. Jesus was saying that these were a people who weren't filled with spiritual passion. There was, there was no desire to truly serve Jesus. 
they're content to just kind of float along in their walk, going to church, smiling, shaking hands, throwing some money in the plate, probably a whole lot of money because they were really wealthy, praying when it suited them because they needed something from God, being a good person, but always remaining in control of their own life. Always. Or at least trying to. And Jesus is saying that those Christians are useless to me. Not only were they self-deceived, they had no power at all. And all they could ever hope to accomplish was superficial, human-sized results that brought no glory to God. And this church left such a bad taste in our Lord's mouth that he said to them, I will spit you out of my mouth. And it's not just like, this is like vomit up out of contempt and disgust. The words echo the warning of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he cautioned his hearers of what he would do to those who were outwardly religious but hadn't submitted to truly following him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus doesn't want any, you're my homeboy, Jesus, Christian. Hey, I'm praying to the big man upstairs, Christian. Jesus says of such people, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. John MacArthur says, there is no one further from the truth than the one who makes an idle profession but never experiences genuine saving faith. No one is harder to reach for Christ than a false Christian. John Stott adds, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th, well, 21st century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. You know, if you look at different statistics, they'll tell you that there's 3.5 billion Christians in the world today. And all I have to say to that is many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Why is this? Well, at the end of the day, like the church in Laodicea, it's all about control and submission to Christ's authority. That's what it comes down to. It's not about belief. It's about submission. It's about either handing him the keys to our lives and joining his kingdom or trying to keep control for ourselves. Laodicea was comfortable. Lots of wealth. Lots and lots of wealth. And the people there, including, including those who called themselves Christians, they were comfortable practicing a form of faith but had never actually submitted to God as the master of their lives. They were very, very comfortable being their own masters. They said they believed. It wasn't a matter of belief. It was a matter of, did my life reflect what I say I believe? Am I truly submitting to the one I'm saying as my Lord? Jesus knew exactly. He knew exactly what he was saying when he called them wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They trusted in their riches from their banks instead of trusting in Jesus. They thought they were rich, and yet they were poor. They healed their eyes with the special eye salve from the medical school, yet they were spiritually blind. And they clothed themselves in the finest wools, yet they were spiritually naked. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see what Jesus is doing? He is speaking to them right where they are. They were happy to pray a prayer and profess their trust in Jesus, but really they only trusted in themselves and their own riches, their own wealth, their own comfort, their own ability to control their lives. And I, just, I just want to pause right here and say that the reality is that this is true of many of those who call themselves Christians today. Even right here in this room. How do I know that? Because that was me. Why am I so passionate about this? Because this was me. For most of my life. I grew up here in Cornerstone Church. I've been here since I was 15 years old. Pastor Tim was my youth pastor. I knew all the right answers. I believed in Jesus. It wasn't a matter of that. I got baptized, and I made a genuine profession that Jesus died for my sin, and he is my Lord. And, and I dare say that I was a pretty good kid. But I never, ever actually submitted to him. I was in control. I'll live how I want to live in secret. Say I believe all this stuff because I don't, I do believe it. Yeah, Jesus died for me, sure. I'm going to go here and live how I want to live. It's not, I'm passionate about this because I firmly believe 
that I was bound for hell. Until my God saved me. It's as simple as that. And he taught me what it meant to truly follow him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's continuing to teach me what that means. I don't have it down. Ask any of the pastors here what our greatest concern is, and we'll all tell you it's that there would be someone sitting in these seats week in and week out who says they believe and is going to go to hell because it's just an intellectual facade and it has no impact on their life whatsoever. Now, I pray to God that that's not any of you. But I'm not naive, and I know that it really could be some of us. Now, I don't know anyone's heart. I am not God. He knows. But I guarantee you that the Holy Spirit will let you know if you ask him. He won't let you in the dark on that one. And even if you are genuinely following Jesus, praise God, we have got to constantly be evaluating and listening to the Spirit's call to us to submit to him, to hold nothing back, to leave every part of us in his control. I can't tell you how I have been convicted these past couple of weeks praying and preparing and and studying for this sermon because the Spirit's been like, okay, yeah, yeah. I've saved you, but you still try to hold on to that one sometimes. Yes, I do. Lord, forgive me. Help me to let it go completely. So this isn't just someone who's self-deceived. This is for any of us who are trying to keep control. Any of us who aren't giving the keys over to Jesus. Well, how do we do it? How do we give him the keys? How do we say, you drive, take the back seat? Thankfully, thankfully, praise God, Jesus doesn't just bring the hammer down and then drop the mic and walk away. It's not what our Lord does. We have a God of grace and mercy, praise God. (laughs) And so he tells us what the cure for our condition is. And he continues on in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, truly rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline So be zealous and repent. And here it is. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we just got to skim this here. We just got to skim this. But we find that Jesus wants the Laodiceans and he wants us 
to see where we get our true riches, not from our banks, not from our sheep, not from our medical eye salve. It's from him and him alone. We can only receive these things when we go to Jesus with a humble, repentant heart and submit to him and trust in him, not just to save us, that's the starting point, but it's to transform us and make us more and more like him and to invite us into the work that he's doing so that we can have a purpose for living. All as we wait for him to return and restore all things to the paradise that he's always intended it to be. That is the whole gospel. Not just ask Jesus into your heart and you're good. Yay, we're saved. There's so much more than that. Look at verse 19. Jesus truly loved this church. And he loves us. In fact, he loves us enough to speak a sharp word, to snap us out of our deception so that we would see the true state of ourselves when we don't submit to him. Just like a loving parent, he reproves and disciplines us, not because he's being a jerk, but because he loves us. And he wants us to know him. And follow him. No more facades. No more holding on to the things that we want to keep in our control. Jesus hasn't abandoned even this, the worst of the seven churches. And praise God, he has not abandoned us. He continues to call out to us to submit to him, not just in an emotional moment. When the music's playing and I'm going to go for it up to the altar. Now, God uses that, but it cannot end there. That's the beginning of an entire life of submission to Christ as he shows us the good and glorious things he has for us as his brothers and sisters. We've been adopted into his family. He wants us to sit on the throne with him. but we'll only be led if we allow him to lead us. And this brings us to our twisted scripture in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The Laodiceans, they claimed to be followers of Jesus. They had even moved in to Jesus' house and called themselves his church. Yet they barred the door to their master and wouldn't let him in. They refused to give up control and continued content in their wealth and prosperity. Listen, Jesus isn't painting the image of some wayward vagabond who's looking for a place to stay. Oh, please let me in. I just want to come into your heart. 
He's banging on the door. Why? Because it's supposed to be his home. They've already said, we are Christians. This is your house. So Jesus is saying, okay, let me in. And praise God that he didn't go away. That is grace and mercy. He stayed and continued to incessantly bang against the door, waiting for them to open it up and let him in. He didn't walk away. Over and over and over and over and over, he banged away at the door that he was supposed to own. Waiting for them to finally say, the keys are yours. You're in control. He yearns to take his rightful place as the master of the house, the Lord of the church, and take control back so that his power can go forth and the Holy Spirit can move and do amazing things to bring glory to our God. No more of this human-sized results, God-sized results that bring God glory. That's what this verse is about, not some nice little image about accepting Jesus into your heart so that you can just be saved It might start there, but it cannot end there. We've got to get away from that anemic gospel and see that Jesus desires to be our master so that we can have a deep and genuine relationship with him, so that we can eat with him and enjoy fellowship with him. Be zealous and repent, Jesus says in verse 19. That's the key. And when we do that, we hand over the keys to our kingdom and let him take control. If you call yourself a Christian and yet you've locked the door to Jesus' control in your life, you're not a Christian. I don't say that flippantly and I don't say that to try to scare anyone. I say that because that was me. I know, I was there, deceived for many years, because I had no idea what it meant to be a real follower of Jesus, to truly be his disciple. And I praise God again for his grace and mercy in my life, that he continued to pursue me and knock on the door that I said he owned, but I kept him out. And praise God that he taught me how to submit. And he continues to teach me how to submit and follow him. Of course, that begs the question, how do I submit and follow him? Kind of want to know what that looks like. It's important, isn't it? Well, here we go. Let me teach you what it meant to be a disciple of someone in the first century. This is taken directly from the writings of Jewish rabbis at the time Jesus lived. And this is what a rabbi expected of their disciples. Here it is. And by the way, Jesus was a rabbi, in case you didn't know. He was a Jewish rabbi who had disciples, and and he told us, what did he tell us to do? Go and make disciples, not converts. Disciples. 
And so these are the expectations that Jesus had for all of those who proclaimed to follow him. Here we go. Number one, a disciple was someone who memorized their teacher's words. They didn't just listen to him and, oh, that was interesting, kind of go away and forget about it. They didn't just do their devotional and check the box and I'm good for the day. They sat under the words of their teacher and they let those words sink over them and they meditated upon them so that they would go into that person's heart and they memorized the words of their teacher. Number two, a disciple learned their teacher's traditions and interpretation of scripture. This was really important because every rabbi had a slightly different interpretation on the word of God. This is why Jesus said things like this. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, that was Jesus, the rabbi, giving his interpretation of Scripture. Now, we know his interpretation is the right interpretation because he is the one who fulfilled it, and he is the one through whom everything finds its conclusion. Christ is the end of all Scripture. He is the telos. It's Greek, forget it. He's the end of all Scripture. It's important that we always view Christ the lens through which we view everything. Third, a disciple imitates their teacher's actions. You don't just follow a guy around for no reason. They tried to look and be exactly like their master. I mean, they would go, and I don't say this to be crass, I say this to illustrate the point. They would go into the bathroom with them and watch them go to the bathroom so that they would know how to properly go to the bathroom. Because unless they went into the bathroom, they would never know that a rabbi said a prayer before and after every time he went to the bathroom, and he washed his hands in a very specific way in order to be cleansed. They'd never know that if they didn't go into the bathroom with him. That's just an example. They followed their master everywhere. And a disciple was called a good disciple when he was covered in the dust of his master because that's how closely behind he followed the feet of his master, trying to be like him and imitate him. Fourth, and this is a big one, a disciple was taught to raise up other disciples for their teacher. You weren't a true disciple if you weren't trying to make other disciples for your master. If you weren't doing that, you were just, to use Kyle Eidelman's language, you're just a fan. Fifth and finally, and this is the whole point of this passage, by the way, a disciple submitted completely to the will of the one whom they followed. If there was any rebellion, the master would dismiss them. Except for the case of Jesus. He was actually 
really gracious with his disciples. And I praise God for that because he is still gracious with his disciples. Amen? Now look, I'm just going to list these here and I hope and I pray that you meditate on these, you put these somewhere where you can look at them every day because this will help you to truly follow Jesus. Now listen, this is not a legalistic rubric of how you do faith. It's not what this is. Because if you make it legalistic, you're still going to hell. This is what our master expected of us. Because he wants to know us. He wants to have relationship with us. He wants to have dinner with us all the time. The Greek word for eat here in verse 20, it refers to the last meal of the day, the evening supper. God is calling out so that he can come in and have fellowship with us, but we have to recognize that this is the last meal. The time is short. And after this meal, all we have is the long night of judgment. That's why Jesus is so incessant with his banging, because he knows what comes next. It's time for us to repent and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with zeal that we may submit to our Lord, we as his disciples and he as our master. We can't be like Ralph Napierski, the German blogger who pretended to be a bishop and was kicked out when his ruse was exposed. You want to know how they figured it out? Well, upon closer inspection, they realized that while very close to a bishop's garb, the clothes that he had on were of his own design and he got them for himself. They weren't given to him by the church. And not only that, but secondly, they recognized that he did not submit to the instructions that he was given. He did his own thing with his little priestly followers as they kind of meandered all around the Vatican taking pictures and shaking hands, which is directly against the instructions that they were given when they went in. We, we can't wear clothes of our own making or rely on the riches or wisdom of this world. We can't keep the keys to our lives and try to stay in control. Listen, it's, it's time to turn the keys over to Jesus and let him have full control of our lives. That we'd be clothed in the forgiveness and the mastery of our Lord. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, then you have been bought by his blood on the cross, 1 Corinthians 6.20. You aren't your own. You belong to God. And he wants all of you. So give him the keys and let him take his rightful place as the master of your life. Not you being the master, but he being the master. By God's grace and mercy, he'll teach us how to do this. The question is, will you hand over the keys?
I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, every one of us says, it's all yours, Lord. It's all yours. Amen? Amen, let's pray.